Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, so today is Monday, the 30th of January in 2023, and my guest is Alicia Nakhmat. Alicia is a PhD in human-robot collaboration, an architect and an entrepreneur. She is the CEO and founder of two startups, MI Toolbox and The Circular Factory. Today, we'll talk about how to reimagine the construction industry, including through advances in technologies such as digital and advanced manufacturing, robotics, and modularization. Alicia, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, Nicholas. Um, thank you very much for the invitation. Very excited to be here um, talking with you today. Great. Very excited to have you on. Uh, Alicia, besides what I already said about you, can you give listeners a bit of a sense of who you are as a person and what's your background? Yes, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm an architect um, by training and uh, I have been working in the, in the construction industry like uh, for the last 15 years, building different uh, from uh, skyscrapers to like the most small residential projects, a large uh, pavilions and more innovative structures. Uh, I have also been working in digital fabrication and robotics and ro uh, for the last kind of uh, 10 years, where I have been focusing on uh, how can we merge these two worlds or how can we uh, bring these uh, digital kind of advanced technologies into the, into the construction industry, to the SMEs and to like all the other players in the industry. So that has been my, my work and research. I have been, uh, I, I was based in London like, for 12 years and uh, now I'm in Canada and uh, I'm in Rattan. Great. So you have a background in academia and research in design and in architecture. How did you transition to become an entrepreneur? I never really saw myself as an academia person. Although I'm, I'm now ending up in this, in this kind of a field, I started in Mexico City and then I, I moved to, to London to the, to the DRL, to the Architectural Association, a design research lab. Um, at that time, it, uh, the, the LRA was starting to promote this, uh, this thing of being called like visiting schools, right? You, you will propose a program, go somewhere in the world and bring this knowledge with you and uh, with your colleagues. And it was really for, right? We would uh, get the students, uh, uh, like make a kind of talk to another local university that will host us. And then we distribute all the knowledge that we were getting at the AA to these visiting schools. So it was really like a lot of fun and, and a lot uh, and great experiences. We started to build these huge pavilions uh, on the visiting schools in Mexico, then within China, within India. So we were really trying to disseminate uh, the knowledge and the things that we had. At the same time, like um, I had a lot of uh, previous experience in, in Mexico, like uh, in the construction sector. 
So I could call people that I knew, like contractors. I started to see their interest into, um, into, into what we were doing, right? And for me, that kind of started to be very exciting because I had my, my, my workers, for example, that I had worked with them before for like years. I would call them, hey, I'm doing this concrete stuff. Can you please come and kind of work with me because I need someone to be with me? They will come. And then we did this for, for, for a few years, right? And by this time, I will come to Mexico again and I will call them again. Hey, can you come? I'm going to build another pavilion. And they were like these very interesting shells uh, using all of these new digital design methodologies that we were just like starting to really research and use. Uh, so at that time, like, um, they will come to my, to my, to my construction site or, or to work with me and they will tell me, Hey, Alicia, uh, or, or Arky, you know what? Like, uh, since I worked with you last time, uh, I, I, sh I show my, my clients now that I use this shell and, and they just pay me a lot more. And, uh, and like also they, they see that I'm not only doing traditional, like columns and slabs and the traditional construction work. So I, so I could start to see like really tangible the benefits that, that these technologies have not only for the students and for designers. And, and for, for architects, but really like all across, right? So at that time I was, uh, I was working in a normal office doing also a lot of like parametric tools and a lot of, um, and a lot of design tools for them. And it was a big, big and large office doing a lot of stadia and a sport infrastructure, which also is one of my passions. So I was very happy, but then I had the opportunity to, to move into doing, um, into doing a PhD and, and, and that was like a good compromise into like, well, I can have some of my time to also develop this, um, these uh, other technologies and, and to also keep building pavilions. And I already had this knowledge in my head that uh, that what we were doing was benefiting a lot of people. So so then I started. So then that's when like uh, I started my PhD. But I always had this. Um, I always had this like thing inside me that I wanted to do this available and I wanted to really bring this to, to more people. And I knew that within academia is is like, great. Like you can do a lot of research and really experiment. But to bring this uh, to people to, to everyone. It had to be through a startup and companies where I can really disseminate this knowledge. That's how I was always like in this duality of like, yeah, I wanted to keep doing research and work and, uh, and keep trying to do experiments. But I also wanted to bring this um, to, to, to everyone, to make it accessible. That's how I started with like, uh, uh, first we had uh, architecture extrapolated, we, we were building a lot of these pavilions, um, collaborating with, uh, with each age, with, with a lot of um, officers. And then we started to work into my secret factory and now MI toolbox. But um, always having that academic research in the background that has allowed me to find talent and that I know is interested in doing this with me. And then they come and then they keep going in a more company-wise kind of market. Right. So saying you gained very, you gained practical experience in the construction industry very early on. And then in academia, you discovered new technologies that were feeding into your work that, that you were doing uh, in the construction industry. What was it specifically um, that, that impressed you when you were in academia or researching or discovering these new technologies that made you question how things were done in the construction industry before? The term, like, this was like, 2012, right? And 2011, and all the, the thing of like kind of robotics in architecture was a lot newer. Like right now there are like a lot of robots in almost every, every, every uh, university and everywhere, right? But at the time there weren't so many, but I already, uh, I was, I was starting to, to look into it, to be like into the, the robotic conferences, um, like really start, I started to look into the field and 
we were building one of these like uh, innovative shells, these like kind of innovative pavilions in Mexico. Like we could see that the uh, the trades and the workers had the skills to do it, but it just came to the point where like uh, because of the shade, we did say like um, how can we like uh, communicate this shape to to in in an efficient way, right? And then um, you know in an efficient way because they don't really need a lot more. They if they know how to make the shape, they will know how to make it because we already had had worked with them before. We know that they are skilled, that they will know. And then it came like we were just talking and, and with with my with the team and, and really brainstorming. And it was like, well, if we had if we had like a robot to to just trace the shape in the three D space, then they will be able to just trace it on top because they um. They didn't even need any any form work, any structure. What they needed was just to know where to where to precisely position uh, the different reinforcements, right? And that's when we saw that ability of world moving from the from digital into the physical world. And when you have um, that, that we really need to need to improve because then we do have the skilled trades, we do have the skilled for a workforce that will be able to deliver on it. But how do we do this translation in a very efficient way to keep like? For the efficiencies that we have on the digital design process to translate them into the, into the physical reality. And I think that that moment that was 2013, we were working in Mexico doing one of the shells in one of these visiting schools that I thought, well, this is really something I really want to dive in and to really work. So when I went back to London in 2014, uh, I mean, I, I didn't go until 2014, but I went back and in 2014, uh, when I quit my job, I really d- decided I really want to dedicate most of my time to really understand how can we do these two presentations and how can we uh, create these um, collaborations between the digital and the physical world um, in the construction process. So I think that that was like a moment it just came to me, like, well, it would be so simple, right? If we could just aid them or augment them with the machine because they already know how to do everything yeah, else. I don't need to do like super com- complex things with the machine. Mm-hmm. I only need to help them to get that digital information. Okay. Great. I'd love to dive a bit deeper and understand the construction industry because um, to me, that's a relatively new industry. I don't have much of a professional experience in it. Many of my listeners don't. I do interestingly have a bit of an, I did a bit of academic work um, when it comes to the um, management of large scale infrastructure projects, including construction. And I've been like a consultant at the Berlin airport which was like plagued by massive cost overrun and delays. So that's my exposure to the construction industry. Um, but can you, what can you say about the construction industry? What's surprising to many people? What's interesting to know about the industry? The construction industry is, is very interesting, unfortunately, or it's one of the less digitized. And you imagine like, like kind of workers, like listing all of these heavy things, very unsafe. It has like a very, very bad reputation, like not super safe but and dirty uh, and, and also that are, but it wasn't like this all the time. Like I think that in, in the past, there was a lot of pride in the trades, in being part of the construction industry, in knowing like masonry or, or well-being or, um, or carpentry, even history. Like there was really like a lot of, of pride and a lot and people very, very highly skilled that we're doing this task that has built the schools for the trade. Like in France, uh, there are like, for example, uh, compagnons and, and these kind of schools that really focus on, on framing, right? And, and then you get the, these people that are super high-skilled at trades that do fantastic work uh, in clustering, clustering, 
like all of these, all of these kind of things uh, that has been um, disappearing. That has been uh, like like these very skilled trades have been really disappearing. So there is a lack of a skill, and and I think that that has led to the construction industry to to be more basic in a way, right? So now the, the buildings are, it's more difficult to make complex things. And, and I think that it's due to like a lack of skills that uh, has been going on for a long time. Also, there is the, the, the issue of like uh, job people, right? Who, who don't really want to be in the construction industry because it also has all of these bad rep because it's seen as, as, as boring, as, as, as dirty and, and, and not. So, so those are, I think, two of the main issues in the construction industry is that there is no... Um, there is a, a huge amount of skills and there is no new, new young talent incorporating because it, it's in an apprentice sort of way, how, the, how it has generally evolved, right? So a lot of the talent of the, of the, of the master builders, for example, will be retiring um, in, 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 um, in the next 10 to 15 years, at least in the UK and in Canada. And, and the intake is so low that there is really no one to take this skill. So, so that, I think, uh, is one of the big problems in the construction industries is the lack of new talent. The other thing is that the automation. So I think that when you, when, when you in your head um, think about the automation, we think about the car industry, right? We think about production lines and we think robots and they will be making these cars and, and we all have that image in our heads of like the Ford kind of production line. So what happened is that when you start to think about automation of the construction industry, we think about cars. So we are thinking like, oh yes, all of these parts and components um, are kind of being produced in a factory. And are, and are coming out and being deployed. However, buildings are not cars. So, so then they are not made to be moving around. They are, they are in a certain space. They have a lot of more, um, they have to be customized to the place where they are. They have to be, um, so a lot of the times you don't, you are not doing a new building, but you are renovating an old building or you are, um, retrofitting an old building. So that means that a lot of the times the construction, uh, and, and these processes have, haven't been automated yet, right? And I think that that um, has led to a situation where like a lot of the buildings are done with modular construction, which means it's all in a factory and the panels are come and deployed on site as if they were cars. However, we know that modular construction will not be able to address the bigger market just because it's not, um, it is customizable to, to like uh, all of the intricacies of it, like a smaller plot or labor of fittings or all of that. So I think that the construction yeah. industry got caught into this, uh, in, in this period of time where like it didn't go digitized on time. Where it was then, so, so you have your traditional construction side where you have all these people working, you have different trades. You as a construction manager will have like, a, will have like a timeline of your different trades, like a timber, concrete, plaster, painters, uh, uh, hydraulics, and you have to organize how these trades come into construction so that they don't clash with each other and everyone has enough to work. So it wasn't this very kind of old fashioned, uh, old fashioned sort of process in a way, right? Where you have master builders teaching apprentices and, and then they were going off the chain. And, and it, and it didn't digitize in time. And then when it wanted to digitize, we started to think about, well, let's do it like the same way that cars are done, which are like so successfully have been manufactured in factories for a long time. When actually it's not the case, it's a totally different industry. And, and now we have an industry that is, that is like uh, lacking a skill, that is not attracting job talent and that is he being blamed as a very inefficient, a lot of pollution, a lot of unsustainability. And it keeps on this um, dark side of history somehow, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's in a way surprising that 
like many big cities that are very desirable to live in, like London or Berlin or Paris or New York or San Francisco, um, they have a very high demand for people to move there. At the same time, housing prices are massively increasing. Isn't that like a great opportunity for the construction industry? Why don't we build more in these places? I will say that a lot of the housing affordability might be more related to policy and to uh, governance and to a lot of the of the situations uh, that are related to like uh, building code, for example, which are pretty outdated, are not really catching up with new technologies and with new, new, new fabrication methods and with, and with new research, like to do anything new uh, in, the, in the construction industry, you have to go through like a series of approvals that can take 10 years. So it's not really in line with like trying to deploy new things uh, or, or new construction systems. So I would say that the problem of the housing affordability is not so much a construction industry problem as it is a regulatory problem and a policy problem and a problem based on like building codes and a lot of these things that are not, uh, yeah, that, yeah. that happens to updated. Which might be one way to explain why the industry has, well, not modernized or stagnated, right? So we had another example on the podcast about the nuclear power industry. Right. So it was also heavily regulated. Any approval, if you even have a chance to get it in the first place, takes decades. Right. So it just means the technology development is slowed down because you're not keeping pace in real time with market demands. Right. You can't deploy new technology as efficiently because, you know, you need this time to convince the regulators to adopt new technology. And that's why you're hard because with new technology, you have to rethink previous safety standards. Right. So. Could that be a reason that the construction industry hasn't been able to introduce a lot of technology? Yes, I think that's correct. That, that, that's definitely a reason. So I'm wondering how can we overcome that, right? So what are the ways for entrepreneurs in the construction industry to introduce new technology? How are you thinking about bringing new technology into the construction industry? One of the things that we are doing, we are developing this like augmented uh, augmented toolboxes right where basically we do we do have like a box with, with, with robot arms with like a lot of end effectors and a lot of different tools how and and we are deploying them or renting them or they are for rental right to the smes to the to the contractors that might want to rent now the the, the, the advantage there is that we are not fundamentally changing um, the construction like results in a way like like if, if it's a, like a timber framing building, for example, it will remain being a timber framing building. What we are doing and what we are really trying to do with that is like trying to um, upskill that contractor. So he comes with us, he trains into like robotics, digital fabrication. He, he knows how to understand how to use them. And the way that we are trying to do it is the, way, the same way that a contractor, maybe, for example, will need like a miter saw or a chainsaw that maybe he doesn't normally have. So you go and rent the tool which is not something very, very common in the construction industry and, and in other industries that you will rent whatever tools you require to, to, to that you don't have to keep and to own yourself. What we are trying to do is to really um, not, um, not have to deal with the regulations and with the code because they're only training them. Then they rent this tool. The tool just happens to be a robot that can do a lot of tasks for them, right? 
that can help them to like measure and cutting and doing and drilling and, and so so now we are making this person, this human, more efficient and faster. He now is like skilled in like digital technologies. But we are not trying to mess or, or to get involved with a lot of things that we really uh, take us a lot of time for, for regulations. So I think that there is an opportunity to make the change at a smaller to start the change into like introducing these tools um, and just try to, for them to be part of the process as opposed to a total new process. That is something that I see a lot of benefits in doing that. And, and that's also something that I know is a, is a, um, is a way that other industries use, right? To, to enter the market. Um, and, and I know like, uh, for example, with like the, the tortilla industry, I mean, and this was something that one, the biggest tortilla producer in Mexico City, what he told me was like, well, when you, um, when they tried to start to make, to make them in the, in England, in the UK and to, and to import them, he said, like, if I say that this is like a tortilla, then I will be on the, on the Mexican food section, right? So I will be like on this patient's food section, which only like few people go. But if I make a wrap, then I am in the general market with the bread. So then I am something that starts to introduce into the people life and not seen as a specialty or as something that is exotic and they only do once on, 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 on Taco Tuesday kind of thing, right? It's something more normal. And I think that that's what we are trying to do. see, okay, how can we start to deploy some of these tools in a way that they just integrate with existing workflows and it's just not, not just like a totally new thing that requires all of these, all of these changes. It's just like some new thing that they yeah. are doing, but, it, but just seamlessly it can blend with other things that they already do. Okay. So uh, am I getting this right? Just correct me if I'm wrong. There's a lot of regulations, mainly building codes, right? So, you know, the sizes, the heights and sort of safety features, I'm just making things up, right? Right. Uh, at the materials you can use. So that's a bit harder to disrupt with technology, right? Because to do any of these things might go against some, some regulations. So you're focusing on that and augmenting humans, right? To do that process more efficiently. Is that kind of the story that you were? Yeah. So we're introducing the technology as one more tool that humans could use on their repertoire of tools as opposed to something that is radically new. And, and I think that some of the ideas is that then, or, or, what, we're or what we are testing with that is that, well, th there is a lot of things of adaptation in that way. And, to, and also then it's like what we have found, uh, found out also, you know, a lot of these young people now, uh, we have got a lot of requests for using that technology. Like, I mean, like young people get interest because they're robots. And so it's exploring these ways into which we can, um, make it um, part of the practice and eventually then make the bigger change. That's how we are approaching this, this problem to introduce the digital technologies into, into the construction industry. Yeah. So can you talk a bit more about the circular factory? How did you get to found it and what is it doing? What problem is it solving? See, oh, yes. Um, the circular factory is a startup that we that, um, that I am doing in, in, in it's based in Rotan, in Prospera, inside that Prospera. We started with the idea of the circular factory two years, 2023 years ago now. And at that time, we were talking with, uh, with Eric, with Eric Bremen, uh, founder of Prospera. And, and he had this idea in his mind about Prospera being like this platform for prosperity, right? For bringing prosperity for everyone. 
So in this conversation, and it goes back to something to what I was talking about in, in, our, in like building buildings with stars. Will it make sense to be shipping all of these pieces from either Europe or the US, or should we just try to, to build them on site or near the site, let's say, not, not exactly on site, and train the talent in the way as we do this, right? So train the talent, uh, kill the locals, and also bring this prosperity because now they will be getting the money for making Eric, um, we're supporting this initiative, this idea. And, and it has been like a long process. We are three years into it. Uh, and so we started to design, okay, what will be the, the minimal uh, investment, the minimal requirement to make, uh, to make this factory work uh, or to make this fabrication facilities like, a, like an advanced workshop for carpentry work. So we started to look into machines, into robots, into, of course, robots were going to be there just because they are so flexible and they can allow for so many different uses and they are cheaper than, 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 uh, than, seeing, than other kind of fabrication machines, right? And other big machines for like timber panels and timber, and, and timber production. So we started to look into that. We made the different layouts and then eventually we, we started to also develop a software that will ease this transition and allow like local people to just very quickly get trained into the use of the machines and be able to participate in the production of these very sophisticated pieces. So, um, so that's how the Shakespeare factory was born. I think that also 2020 it was like the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we were starting to see all these changes, right? Like uh, all these disruptions to our lives. So, so, um, so it was also at the time also in the US, there were all these ideas of onshoring, of bringing manufacturing back. Like, well, uh, just just for the machines, it took like one year to arrive. So imagine being shipping all of these products right now. Does it make sense anymore in, 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 the, in, in the world as, as we know that currently things are? So, so that kind of was, was, was a lot of this idea of bringing the production capabilities into the island, into a very remote location, which of course hasn't gone without a kind of lot of challenges. And also upskilling people in the process. Wow, that's that's fascinating, right? So, you're can you tell us a bit about the circular factory that you're building right now? How does it, um, how will it look like, and what will it do once it's finished? We are building the, the actual shell building. Like, um, it's the, it's not the minimum. It's the minimum footprint that that we really wanted to go is about five hundred square meters. Uh, it has two big, two large robot arms, um, ABB uh, robot arms. It has a lot of other machines like uh, uh, for, for carpentry. Most of them is just like a, like a, like a augmented carpentry shop in a way. And, and the idea we are aiming that to have an opening, uh, later this year, I would think in the summer of 2023, we are aiming for an opening and, um, and, uh, and we are going to be producing, uh, initially the panels for the Bayabu development inside Prospera, but we are also looking at working with other, um, other of the developments yeah. like that are going on in the island. We are uh, expecting to have a team of around 15 people. Most of them will be locals, locals, island people that will be working with us um, in, in that, that will directly benefit from the digital technologies. However, indirectly, um, we think that we are going to have more than 200 employees that will be in, indirectly be benefiting from the secret of factory. Yeah, and that's so it's a kind of a high-tech workshop with um, robotic arms, um, where local workers will produce building materials for construction projects on the island. I'm very much looking forward to see that. 
sounds so exciting. And I've been to the construction site a couple of times. Um, how does the business model look like, right? So will you sell the building materials to the construction sites, to developers at a higher price? Or how can I, how can I think about that? We are selling the finished products to the contractors or to the, the people that are building the buildings, right? What, what we are also developing a lot of the, we are also developing the digital and the software interface for, for, for doing this, for producing this. So, so eventually we are like a design to production uh, company where like you can uh, really come with all with a design or something that you want to build. So in that software component, you can then also monetize by licensing it or to, to other players in the construction industry. Correct. Okay. So, right, so we're also licensing the software um, to, we are, um, to, to other, uh, to other companies. And we are also, uh, so, so, so those will be the two, the two main, um, a revenue stream, right? So one is a finished product, other is licensing the, the, the software. We are also right now, we have also incorporated uh, 3D printing facilities uh, uh, on the software, not on the, not on the factory, not on the, not on the physical setup, uh, with the idea of a bit, like um, some of the parts, we know that eventually they will also require from 3D printing. So we are also incorporating other uses that are not only timber, but right now the main, um, the main use is timber. Great. So in what ways does the, does Prospera make a difference for you, for the project? What's, is there anything that's easier for you to do there or to showcase it? Or what are the advantages that you see? Yes, I think that, I mean, that we, we are really excited, right? To be part, and we really want to be part of this effort of having a new city. Uh, we like new governance methods, new ways of building. So, so I think that that for us is very important. Uh, to really have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit uh, and support. Um, a lot of the workshops are the secret factory as, as, a, as, a, shop, as a shop, as a, as a timber shop. We are building it currently to like international standards because we just think it's important to keep that so that we can also uh, export the system or the layout or how it is, it is built, right? So we are being very rigorous about, uh, about keeping everything into international standards with the aim of then having this as a, as a facility that then could be used um, for, for other for other projects. Uh, but definitely Prospera is helpful in, in having this um, exposure and, and really being able to build this, uh, to build it and to, and to start to, to produce the components. I think that the streamlining of the process into a much faster operation has been very interesting uh, in the collaboration with Prospera. What do you mean streamlining of the process? Like actually being able to like build it. And, and I think that three years, uh, like, like three years to build it sounds like a lot of time, but from other people that I'm talking, that I have talked to about like doing startups in the, in the construction industry, uh, they tell me three years is actually very quick. So I think that a lot of that is thanks to that, like, uh, ability of, of being maneuvering within the Prospera uh, framework. Mm, specifically when it comes to getting permits for what you want to build or having your choice in what building codes you, you abide by or what, what are the specific ways that I think that uh, in terms doing? of like the building codes, we, we are using the international building code as that is what like the project is coming with, of course, with some tropicalization. But I think the fact of, of being able to just build the factory and, and, and bring the robots and, and, and really bring the people in. So like having all of these things coming together like a space and, 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 and being able so designing this workflow with this idea of a high flexibility, but always uh, com complying with a standard. 
is something that we have been really been working inside Prospera. Yeah, yeah. Is there also anything by way of, do you, would you import any of the materials or do you source all the materials locally? I uh, know. That, that's actually one of the mandates that we really are trying to do with Tiger Factory is to ensure that all of the materials are locked. So that really the benefit that we can bring to the region is, is also in the fact that all of the timber, all of the, is, is local, right? So we are buying local product. We are using local talent. And uh, as opposed to, to the other option, which was importing everything, materials and finished products. So, so that's, that's something that we have really uh, put as a, as a border, right? Like as a hard line in our process is that we're, we are using everything local. Great. So how can the circular factory scale from Prospera to the rest of the world? So one option is that, is a, of course, creating more complex projects like uh, we, we have been talking to other uh, Latin America. Uh, there's lots of new resorts and new construction projects that are very interesting geometrically and that are going on in the region that will, be, that will benefit from having at least an advanced fabrication facility so they don't have to, so that, so that is more nearer, right? It's closer to them. So I think that it would be like the idea is like the um, supporting the finished product. We are also um, looking into the model, into like the setup and, and the machine model and, and, and the workflows. Uh, as that, that's something that, I mean, that, that we build it with the intention that it could be repeated, that eventually you could uh, just buy new robots and, and put them in a different place, right? So, so we are also looking at, at building another secret factory that's required in some of the other islands that are also going through like a huge construction boom. And yes, and, and the software, of course, which is like the third part. So I think that those are the three things that we are looking at as our main avenues for expansion. But right. for now, we are focusing on the finished products and like being more and it's not like we are going to produce what you bring. It's like a design to fabrication facility, right? So you bring a design, we are able to make it and fabricate it and, be, and eventually give you finished pieces, which is not a very common that uh, for a lot of shops to do. Great. I'd like to talk a bit about what's ahead or what's the future for technology in the construction industry. So one thing that many people, including myself, I'm curious about that you already mentioned is 3D printing. So how is it already used in construction and what do you see as the pathway to use it more and what can we do better with it? 3D printing is a great, offers great opportunities to, to, to advance. However, how to like build more complex shapes, like have like a more um, need to build phone work. Uh, it also allows to have more affordances as to like Embedding uh, design features like for uh, installations, for hydronics, part of this into the form, and, and also right, like on, on a lot of the design design tools that we are using, uh, the, the the shape that come out of it are more efficient, but like for example, are more optimized, but they are more difficult to build because the shapes are more complex because it's not just like a rectangular lab, right? But it's a lab where you. Uh, one of the things that we are using a lot for the last like 10 years, at least uh, myself personally, but I know other people for longer is like the concepts of like topology optimization, where like, for example, you take a slab and you remove or a, or a volume and you remove any area that, that is not um, carrying any load, right? That is not working. So that gives you a very complex shape, a lot more difficult to build than, than a rectangle. However, it uses less material, so it's more efficient. So how can we 
and that goes again to like, how can we make a form work, translate these shapes from the digital to the physical, and then with 3D printing, kind of everything really has a great opportunity or is really greatly starting to be used to, to make these shapes, to, to help in this, and, and then in this translation, especially for like the form work. And then you can have like very sustainable and efficient uh, pieces and products uh, that, that were not possible to make before 3D printing. So I think that there are really great uh, advances in 3D printing. Uh, uh, I do try to like, uh, I don't think that also there is like this big uh, nonsense media or like in like this 3D printing will somehow affordable housing by just making the same boxes that before were made by um, Head panels, I don't think so. I think that that is just actually detrimental. I mean, it's good to have publicity, but that's actually not the whole point. And I don't think that that is where 3D printing will have its biggest advantages. I think that it, it has great advantages in, our, in allowing us to make shapes and forms that are more efficient and more sustainable in, in a more direct way. And really translate a lot of this digital design into the physical reality for then people to then cast or, or do other works. I mean, I think that I definitely, we are uh, in the circular factory, we are also having 3D printing um, capabilities just because of that, because for a lot of the parts of the project, it just makes sense to 3D print the form work and then cast on it as opposed to a very complex uh, connections and joinery. So, so I think that there is a really a lot, a lot of value in, in the, and, and I'm very excited by a lot of the things that are coming out now in the 3D printing. Yeah, yeah. As we said before, the main challenge is more policy, not the technology or the ability to build when it comes to the housing shortage. Uh, what about um, decarbonization? So um, I sometimes see startups trying to or aiming to produce more sustainable cement, for example, or building materials. Is that something that has already had a big impact in the construction industry? And what, what do you see as the potential to decarbonize or make the production process more sustainable? Uh, yes, I mean, definitely we are, we are looking at a lot, of, we are doing a lot of research in that, in that area of like, uh, of, of decarbonization, however, uh, of like, and I think that there are two areas of research in this, in this. So one is the material research, right? Where we are people looking at cement that kind of removes pollution and, and whatever, and like the super interesting kind of um, material advances. And you also have the area of like the design. And I think that a lot of the focus of things that we do is in how can we design forms and shapes that are more efficient, that are more optimized, that, that require less material. And, 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 and by that, you immediately start to be more sustainable. So I think that the, that the sustainability approach um, has a very, very interesting and huge design component that maybe uh, is not so talked about, but, uh, but definitely something that we are working on and that we are very interested on in developing with a lot of, uh, and that definitely the, the fact of having the digital tools enabled to, to go there. I mean, there are lots of startups into, into construction systems, into, into new methods of construction. Uh, and I think that that's very valuable because really, if we are able to build this, this kind of new geometries, we will be able to have a more sustainable based environment because of the way it is designed. And, and I think that that's something that historically was the case, like shapes were, or, or buildings looked, looked as related to the materials they were built of and the real where they will be off. And then you will have these differences across the world of like different materials give different results. 
But then suddenly, um, we, we just right now have this, uh, this thing where like everything looks the same everywhere. Right. And I think that, that a big, a big thing that we, that we definitely see is the, the whole, uh, with, with uh, digital technologies is the, the mass customization. We definitely like, it's, it's a big advantage that, that we offer, right? Like, like if, if we customize every shape and every, and things to the place where they are going to exist, but also to, to different yeah. conditions and, and with digital tools, like with, with, uh, with children factory, with the robotics, like we can do every single thing different. Like every single panel is different at the same, at not, at, um, without an, ex, an, an added cost, which is not the case of industrial manufacturing, like these car processes, right? Where they are very optimized to make the same thing over and over and over again. So I think that that is a big thing um, of thing uh, when we think about this kind of, um, more sustainable ways of thinking of building is not only about material innovation, but it's actually about being able to customize the process. And that's something that definitely we are doing to, with that MI toolbox and through the circular factory. Just really trying to, to use the robotics to, to customize these and to be able to produce everything different. So then you have a situation where like the, the building panels have different properties as they go out. So, so they are not all the same. And then you are saving material, of course, with the higher ones that will be like lighter. So, so a lot of the mass customization that is enabled by 3D printing, but also by digital timber, and also by a lot of the digital fabrication technologies, really, I think, has a very active impact into, into, these, uh, into these issues um, by enabling uh, mass customization of components and of pieces. Great. When talking, I'm curious about, I don't know how close that is to your research or to your work, but I'm curious because it's something that I've researched when I did my master's and we wrote a book about it called about large infrastructure projects, which include large buildings. But there's like this common pattern in very large projects, for example, the Sydney Opera House or the Boston Big Dig or, you know, any large scale construction that there's massive cost overruns and time delays, right? I mentioned before I was working for the Berlin airport, which is notoriously late and over budget. Why is that in your experience? Well, yes, um, I, I, but there are many, many yeah. aspects to that. One of the very interesting aspects to that, I will say, is that we, and traditionally, we haven't been able to quantify uh, a lot of the construction tasks. And, 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 and that's because uh, they are human-made, right? So, so you find yourself in a lot of situations where like, uh, the, the contractor might say, uh, so there are two issues. So one is like, uh, management problems, of course, right. And others are like just basically human problems, right. So, so one would be like the situation in which like, um, the contractors will not manage the project properly. So they will have all the trades lined up to work, but they are not staggered in a way that everyone can be working at the same time. Right. So, so they don't have, so, so some of the trades, and that's a very common problem. Some of the trades will not have anything to do because the previous guy didn't finish. Or if you don't have walls, you cannot put electricity. So it doesn't make sense to have electrician if you don't have walls. So you can start to find yourself in this problem. And, and, and that means that if some person gets delayed, it will snowball through like, through like everyone else, right? So, so I think that that is like a, that, so that has been a, an issue for some time because then you have like, like the, the wall making person who maybe got delayed because whatever, because he was sick or, or whatnot. But then none of that means that a lot of everyone that was coming behind is now getting stuck. 
And then this happens over and over again. You end up with like a huge problem, right? So I think that, so that's one issue is like the way that the construction kind of construction works, it has to be staggered, like, like, like the processes and, and, and people coming behind each other and, and a delay in, in one person will end up in larger delays. Sourcing, of course, sourcing materials. Like if you find issues where like you didn't order the material in time, then you have the same problem. You know, the, pe the, the, the people that were supposed to use that material then, but now they have nothing to do. And again, that will delay everyone that was supposed to come behind them, right? So I think that those are like definitely um, big issues that, 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 uh, and that's like even, um, in, in the, even on the, uh, prefabricated panel, you find the similar things like when panels come and then suddenly they will, they might, uh, I mean, if they, in the case of a new build, because everything will come and just be staggered and be stuck. It's kind of, uh, that's very efficient. That's where we see that really buildings go up very fast because then everything just adds up. But when, when they don't add up, like if you think about yeah. projects where like suddenly things just don't add up, they don't match, now you have to fix them. And then you start to get down into this snowball problem. So I think that there is a lot of issues into, um, into, into this, um, the, into management. I mean, it's a huge, a complex management thing. And, and I also, and, and the other thing that is that, um, and this maybe it might also happen to you without thinking of like a large project. But um, if you ask like, so uh, if you want to do a renovation on your house and you ask someone to come, they will say it will take one month, but you already know like, like they will be there like forever. And there is a very little trust in any contractor because we know that whatever they say, they might take three times that and, and, and they will not have any reasonable excuse as to why you are now stuck with construction words for a very long time. So, so I think that there is also the, the, that something that the digital technologies do allow us is to have a closer quantification to the work, right? So like, hey, we know that, uh, and, and that's something that we are doing with like, uh, and my toolbox is like, uh, so we, we, we not only have these boxes that we rent to the trades, so just like slowly incorporate into the production process in a very subtle way without having to make a big change, but we also can quantify uh, like how much human time something will take and machine time. So now we can at least, we, can, we are trying to start at least getting some data into that in the knowing, well, you know, like uh, it's actually human processes will take and, and, and creating a database of that, which is something that we're like compiling and, and see, okay, how can we then identify, we start to, to really have more clear time quantification, right? Like, and of course, you will have a good person that might like be able to be faster than a slower person. But we find from um, quantifiable data as to how long it takes to build, to build, uh, to do our innovation. And, and I'm very much looking into projects that are no new builds because, uh, because with the new build, I think quantifying is very easier. And that's where the industry has become very good at, at making these towers very quickly because they know that everything will fit into place. Well, when you need more of the traits, more of like you were saying, like people coming and fixing something and doing something and they have to measure and code and do and that. And it's not something that they will just come and, um, and put from the shelf because it has to be customized. Uh, I, I think that we really are looking at that as a, as, 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 as a very important aspect of reducing delays is to have quantifiable data of how long these human processes stay. And then we can be pairing against that. And, and I think right now, a lot of the estimate of how long something takes is you ask the contractor and the contractor will say like, well, I have these people, they will take this alone. It's very much learned and somehow empirical 
knowledge. When you go and complain and you say, hey, you, you said you will be done three months ago, but you are still going. There are not really a lot of resources to quantify that other time where they are not working. But then like if we could pinpoint, okay, well, this person is taking three days instead of two hours for a task that we know historically should take this amount of time because of, and, and you have other people, then I think that we could have a better model of avoiding delays. And that's something that we are definitely looking into. And also in the secure factory, we are quantifying processes in a human and machine time to then be able to extrapolate these and see actually how, how the data starts to, to fare. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, what we discussed back then when we, as we went through the literature, and I'm not only using that as an analogy, right? I often use the analogy to software, but it's not only an analogy. In fact, large-scale software or IT projects, especially for like large companies or for government, are also over budget and over time. Right. And the analysis was that is due to the waterfall model of planning. Right. So if you have like a project that costs like a billion, then you want to do cost accounting. Right. And so you plan everything to each malicious detail. Right. But once you have one mistake in the planning, that can be very easily the case in projects that are so often very custom and so large, then you have what you call the, um, I call it the waterfall. You call it the, something else, the, the, dom the domino, I think, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, so the solution that software came up with is agile software development, right? So you modularize things more, you have more short-term deadlines, right? So this way it's easier to see, to quantify steps, progress, and to account for things um, that you didn't anticipate or, you know, more properly adjust timelines, more properly put um, people who um, can follow through on their commitments to the appropriate tasks, right? Because otherwise people also have an incentive to, well, they have information asymmetries. They know better how long their task takes than you can, right? So, and how can you know whether or not they're reliable if they say, oh, this is going to take two years, right? So, yeah, no, totally, yeah. And that definitely, I mean, like, like dividing it into very, very small processes, that's something that we are, def that we are doing um, as a workflow. And that should definitely help into getting closer, estimates us to try time concerns. Because, yeah, I agree that that's a big, um, a big issue on the budget of the industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm interesting that um, that's a full circle, closed loop for me, because our conclusion was also we need to modularize the construction process more and decentralize it more and, you know, making it into smaller subcomponents. And this seems very much to me what's, what you're doing with the circular factory. So it's really fascinating to learn about that. Anything you feel that you haven't talked about yet when it comes to the circular factory, but that you would like to talk about? We are aiming to start um, producing in the middle of this year, like around June or July. Uh, we are also uh, looking forward to have an opening and a with our internship people to really show showcase some of the potential of the things that we are doing. Uh, we are having an exhibition. We got invited to present some work at the Venice Biennale, which is one of the more the biggest architectural event. Uh, so we are going to be showing some stuff there in May yeah. with, in one of the palazzos from Secular Factory. Some of the pieces uh, we are we are right now very exciting. We are working towards the Biennale uh, in our temporary facility. Uh, I think that that's something that somehow. Um, what a discovery in a way, right? That 
that we really try to minimize our process, like a little bit of addressing class into like this very small step, right? That could all be done by a machine or by a human. Very small quantifiable steps. You do this, you do that, that's it, right? And for that, we really try to design this uh, footprint. We, we have the minimal amount of machines that we require with the minimal amount of our tools to, to virtually optimize uh, space, cost, et cetera, and then make the process. However, our factory has been a victim of what you're talking about, of construction delay. So our factory, our facility, let's say, has been one of these victims of, uh, of a lot of delay uh, due to a lot of reasons. Uh, but in the meantime, we set up our robots in what we call our temporary facility, which basically is... Is, is, a, is an existing carpentry shop that they list those a little spot. We put, we, we can hit the dark, we put our robots. And what we have been forced to do is to build all the pieces using only the robot arms without any of all the other machines that we had, that we are, that we already have there, that we envision to use. And I think that that has been some of an, an, an interesting discovery for us into, well, actually how minimal can we go? So, so, I mean, of course it takes longer. Of course it's not as efficient, but if, if, uh, but it's also interesting to see that, that, I mean, like a lot of these uh, processes that, that we, uh, that are now requiring like large machines and, and, and very expensive machines and this, uh, we could really make into more and smaller flexible machines that are easier to distribute. And I think that that has been on the last, like since we started on the temporary facility in October um, and for the last month, has been like especially January when we started to work in um, in the in, in uh, producing some of the variable pieces for the Venice Biennale, that we said, well, I mean, there is something very interesting into like that you really are able to produce everything by just two very flexible machines and very small machines. So I think that there is a long way to go into the current uh, prefabrication processes that require all of these large and expensive machines to really make this more human size, more smaller. Right? And, and that has been a very exciting. So I'm very much looking forward to the results of, of what we're going to do. Of course, we are very much looking forward to have our own facility up and running. But I think that has been a very fascinating process of discovery and a, and a downsizing our strength from an already downsized version of, of, of carpentry. But I think that uh, so far has been successful. And, uh, and I think that we are really in this process. I think that we are starting. Like, uh, it seems that already we are three years into it. But... But in the larger picture, it's very new. So, so there is a new road ahead, and we are very excited uh, to do it, to, to work through it. So, yeah. Great. I'm super excited. So as soon as we can announce, so you can announce the opening date, um, we're going to have a conference there for the opening. So anyone's listening, yeah. look out for announcement on Infinita VC or in the link to the Telegram group that I'm going to be posting because invite like industry experts, um, people with background in the construction industry and architecture to come to that opening and present to the world what, what you're doing with the Circular Factory. Any, uh, anything else, Alicia, any shout out that you want to give, anything that you're looking for right now for your company or as an entrepreneur? How can listeners find you if they've got something that they can help you with or want to ask you more questions? We're going to kind of start kind of looking for some funding. Uh, series are uh, very soon. I, I expect uh, in the next few months. So we are also going to like start looking for that. Uh, I am I am at the Secret Factory. You can you can reach me on the Secret Factory. That uh, important thing is the Secret Factory, not Secret Factory. Uh, so you can find me there on the Secret Factory.com. Uh, uh, there is my email address and, and all my details. 
I am currently I'm, I'm in Canada. Um, I'm going to and I'm going to be based in Rotan. Uh, 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 and I'm coming and going from Rotan in Canada, right? So I'm either in, uh, on, but it's easy to find me on the island. Uh, yes. Great. I'm looking forward to see you in Rotan, Alicia. Thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.